I am joined today by my brother-in-law, Mitya, who, in addition to being an extremely pleasant guy, is also blessed with a gentle temperament, a natural tendency to hard work, is intelligent beyond the norm, and also likes to talk about topics that I love to talk about. Mitya has studied archaeology to a very high degree and is familiar with a number of different historical time frames, some of which we will refer to in our talk here today. Mitya is married with children and is also, along with his family, an adventurous type. At the height of Brexit uncertainty, when I was settling myself comfortably into life in Berlin, he and his family were moving from Bonn to the UK to establish a new life on Old Blighty. And my word, have they blossomed. We jump around today from interesting topic to interesting topic, which is nothing new for a talk with me. So I hope you are both patient and also entertained by our meanderings. Mitya, thank you very much for joining me. It's uh, It's been really tough getting to organize our first podcast together, hasn't it? Yeah, indeed. Um, I'm a busy man. You're probably a busy man as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just agree with you there. And then everybody thinks we're both two extremely busy men. Um, but I mean, okay, first of all, you're my brother-in-law. Uh, I think it's important to to point out. So if there's any sort of favoritism towards you from the other people on the show, <laughs> have been, at least they'll understand why. Um, well, but, to be um, fair, I'm everybody's favorite, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a word with my mother-in-law in that case. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's what's also interesting is that I, I love um, talking about sort of social decisions and um, movement and cultural experiences. And what's, uh, you know, I think it's great for us is that you've done the opposite of what I've done. So, you know, I come from the UK and I'm I'm now living in Germany and you are from Germany and are now living in the UK. So yeah. it's the, the opposite journey, as it were. Um, and I, you know, just to give a bit more sort of personal background, when I heard that you were going to be um, moving to the UK, I thought to myself, the guy is mad because <laughs> it was the timing was strange, wasn't it? Um, you think with all Brexit looming and the yeah. whole situation pretty much going downhill. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that kind of situation, yeah. Mm. Um, but it's, I mean, you guys are really happy out there, aren't you? Yeah, that's, that's um, yeah, pretty pretty much sums it up. Um, and I always come to think about a friend, what a friend of mine said. I mean, it's definitely not something you should uh, build your life around but um, what he said in German is einfach mal was verrücktes machen so just <laughs> do something crazy at some point and yeah I think partially that move was bold and a bit crazy with all the um, general situation politically and um, social socioeconomically but um, I think it has worked out really well for us yeah, and um, I mean, I, I want to highlight it because I I thought it was 
going to be uh, very difficult. Um, and I'm sure you still had your challenges. Um, but um, yeah, you completely proved me wrong. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I really like it when I'm proven to be wrong because um, yeah. you know, it allows, it gives me an opportunity to reflect on why I made the, the error of judgment. Um, but yeah, I mean, but you're also in a really interesting place, aren't you? Yes, that's right. So um, we are currently living in Glastonbury, which is in uh, Somerset, and um, it's both uh, when it comes to so contemporary culture and also history. It's quite an interesting place because it's, you could say, since Roman times or probably pre-Roman times, it has been quite the melting pot of ideas and spiritual um approaches so um yeah it's mm. i mean this tallies in pretty much with some of the topics that we're going to talk about a bit later obviously mm. but a substantial um sort of background in, in history yeah. so i mean i guess if, so, if somebody was going to ask you where would you live in the uk i, I imagine glastonbury would already have been quite high up on your list right yeah although if you if you speak to um people about Glastonbury everybody so I would say eight out of ten people say oh yeah the festival whereas um, local people that live around here will tell you that um, Glastonbury festival actually isn't in Glastonbury because it's in Pilton which mm. is uh, around a 50 minute drive from Glastonbury so the only mm. thing that that relates um, the Glastonbury festival nowadays to Glastonbury is that from the main stage you can see the tour in the background um, mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. Um, yeah, but but circling back to the um, to the idea of moving to the UK at that uh, point in time. Um, so that was 2018 when we decided to make that move, and uh, that was pretty much when um, it was decided that Brexit is is going to happen at some point in the future. So that was clear and then um my mom um urged us to to wait out how the whole situation would play out and how um everything would settle with the um, um arrangements between the eu and uh, the uk um but then again um and the way it then played out in the end uh, kind of uh, proved me right that was the uh, exact correct move to move at that point in time because um as as you may uh, recall the um yeah till till that um the whole arrangements of brexit were actually um sorted out between the uh, eu and uk that took around two and a half years <laughs> so mm. so if we if we had waited to make our move once everything was clear how things are going to play out we yeah would have basically lost two years well maybe even more um because yeah. right now the, the i think the the paperwork involved um simply moving goods across the border uh is quite yeah. complex so therefore moving an entire family um i, I could only imagine uh, will have been you know far more complicated so i mean you definitely moved at the right time considering uh, everything that's happened and and it seems the kids have really settled in quite well as well haven't they yeah so um as, as far as bureaucracy is concerned it was 
uh, actually quite easy because at, at the time the EU settlement scheme was still open. So there was freedom of movement. And if you wanted to um, settle in the UK, you could simply apply for, for settled status, um, which gives you after a, a certain amount of time uh, indefinite leave to remain. So um, yeah, so it was, was um, filing a bit of paperwork, but um, I mean, currently, I don't know what the current um, situation is, but I think you have to apply for a visa and also have to um, um, have an employment already uh, secured, et cetera, et cetera. So the, um, it's, it's way more challenging to actu actually move to the UK as a um, non-UK citizen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, and um, as you said, the, the kids have settled in really, really well. So at the time we moved over, um, they were, what were they, six and three, and they didn't have a word of English uh, when we came here, but we were really, really lucky with the with the school they came in because they were very, very supportive, and they um, so went to, to nursery and uh, went to, I think she went straight to, into year two, and um, they they had one teacher uh, allocated to her for the first couple of weeks. All right. So, yeah, you, you were basically saying um, about how cool it was for the kids um, at the school that they you know, they joined. Um, yeah, going from not knowing any English to also being, uh, is it given merits? I mean, do they call it that kind of thing, um, you know, for, you know for, for the good work? I, I know that um, you know, your kids have been commended uh, considerably at school, haven't they? Yeah, um, I'm not sure whether that's uh, just the general culture in the UK, but that was my my impression, pretty much that um, um, people in England love prizes. So, uh, <laughs> so, so we get them it, so rarely internationally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it's that. But um, yeah, the the kids brought home a lot of. Um, a lot of awards for all kinds of achievements at school. And prior to um, the whole COVID situation, they had also had their um, assemblies each week in, in uh, school in the uh, assembly hall, where they want, would then be um, called to the front and get their prize and get a round of applause. And I think that really bolstered their, their confidence as well. Yeah, so. wonderful. Well, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, just quickly then, we touched on on Brexit and that yeah. uh, it hasn't been a negative thing uh, for at least your move there into the UK. What what about the pandemic? Because of, again, we've got a um, a system uh, which is completely different to the, the the German system, and yet there's no, as in I can't looking and being aware of the two the, how the governments over the years have kind of dealt with the the mm -hmm. pandemic. I can't turn yeah. around and say one has been better than the other. I mean, it's, yeah. there isn't really, is there a clear way out of it? No, um, I, I think what what I really, really found helpful in the pandemic is um, having a, a central government that has a national health service um, uh, working for them. Whereas in, in Germany, you have all the, um, um, the states 
um, the 16 uh, states who basically all do their own thing and then the um, the federal government tries to uh, kind of negotiate uh, um, an approach but basically everybody does their own thing whereas here in the UK although the um, yeah, the quality of the central government is debatable, at least <laughs> you have uh, um, yeah, kind of a, a direct approach. Mm. Yeah, it is an, an interesting uh, observation to make the sort of centralized government or the federal decentralized governments uh, in, yeah. in many ways. And of course, there is uh, there are devolved assemblies. So you've got Scotland, Wales and Northern yes. Ireland. Yeah. But that's that's right, and they they pretty much did um did did their own thing in in some ways. So for example, at at the moment, I think the the, the rules in uh, Scotland and Wales are way stricter than in than England. I think Boris just doesn't want to be caught in another <laughs> Christmas party these days. Yeah, I mean he's he's done so many U-turns. He's quite dizzy, I think, by now. Um, but yeah, he he's. Anyway, okay, because if we if we descend into sort of Boris uh, critique, uh, that, yeah, that we're, we're never going to jump out of that particular hole. But anyway, it's unfortunate, um, and I would have expected more, really, from uh, an island nation which has in the past used uh, its sort of you know natural protections and defenses quite well. Mm. Um, but uh, unfortunately, when you're fighting an opponent you cannot see, it's much more difficult. Yeah, and um, I mean there there are always um, um, even more ways to escalate the approach um, against that pandemic. For example, if you um, yeah, as I said, you have the federal um, government in in Germany, then you have a more centralized approach in the UK. Although you you're quite right, you have um, uh, Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland, and Wales, but then again, if you if you see how, for example, China um, handles the pandemic, it's uh, it's quite a different approach. Where they're saying, okay, we're doing lockdown, but not like, okay, we're doing lockdown, but you're still allowed to go out to do stuff, which isn't really lockdown. But they say, okay, nobody's allowed out. Everybody takes a test, and then um, we kind of know who got who's got it and who doesn't. Mm. And then and then if there are two or three cases in the region, then they would um, do a, another complete lockdown. But of course, um, yeah, that only works if you're really a, what's it called? Authoritarian regime. Thank you. That's yeah. all right. That's, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> this is also something we can reflect on um, perhaps a bit uh, later on, maybe when also in another uh, episode, if we, we can kind of talk about the the, uh, the historical development of um, uh, sort of political structures and so on, because I, I'm sure there is, um, you know, something which you can look at throughout different points of a country's history and say, OK, this influenced that particular move and that particular move. And this is why mm -hmm. we kind of have this now. Um, uh, and so sometimes it's not always just a one-off um, decision to have a specific system, but it, it develop, develops sort of incrementally, which is the case mm. of, uh, of the UK. So, yeah. Um, yeah. OK, so obviously we've kind of hinted heavily that there is a historical uh, element to our discussion today. But 
again, also to focus on Glastonbury um, and mm. also to sort of have a, a, a more personal element to it. It's not just because of the, the historical element um, that was the reason for choosing Glastonbury. But if I'm not mistaken, um, your wife also has uh, cultural and um, other interests which link you to the to the region. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, yeah, to be pre precise, um, her linkage to Glasgow is the main reason we chose that as our um, destination to to settle over to the UK. Um, yeah, as we as we mentioned previously, so uh, across the times, Glasgow has been uh, a focal point for uh, spirituality. So um, as um, um, as the myth goes, or I, I don't know if it's actually based in historical fact, but um, the first church in England was founded in Glastonbury. And there's, um, there's that myth about uh, Joseph of, um, what's, it, what's his name, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea? Okay. One, yeah. one, of, one of the followers of Jesus is said to be um, after uh, the crucifixion, having traveled to the UK and um, yeah, kind of um, making landfall in um, in Glastonbury, because uh, at, in Roman times there was uh, still direct access to the sea from Glastonbury, mm. and um, yeah, so it's um, the legend says he um, came to England in Glastonbury and. Um, on the uh, Wirral Hill, where they all landed, he um, kind of put down his uh, walking staff, with uh, which was made of um, hawthorn, and um, then it uh, is said to have um, taken root there, and the tree having grown out of it, which is which is the holy thorn. And um, I don't know if you know, but there's the tradition that um, for each Christmas, um, a twig of the holy thorn gets sent to the queen by oh. um, the, um, I think it's the eldest pupil of uh, St. John's uh, school, which is the uh, school our, our kids went to. Um, okay. So the so the oldest pupil cuts a twig of the holy thorn and that gets sent to the queen for her Christmas table. Wonderful. Mm. Okay. Does she use it to stir her tea, or is that far too dramatic a suggestion? <laughs> I, I don't know what she does with it. I think it's just okay. um, part of the centerpiece of the table or something like that. Okay, yeah, wonderful. Uh, I mean, yeah, when you mention it, actually, I, I remember looking at a documentary about Stonehenge, um, mm -hmm. which I, I believe is not too far from where you are. It's and, a half an uh, hour drive. Yeah. Approximately. And the, the river that sort of flows uh, past, which is now more of a stream than a river, but apparently in, the, in uh, you know, certain thousands of years ago, mm -hmm. um, it was actually quite a torrent, if not a, a fully blown river. So, yeah, I, I can completely understand that um, there would have been greater access to, to the area in the past. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, if if you're looking at the um, geological profile here of uh, of the Somerset levels, um, you're pretty much one or two meters above sea level in um, in, in the downs. So it's it's still a very um, moist um, kind of 
um, region. So um, if you, yeah, if you then take into account that the sea levels during Roman times were way higher um, than with one or two meters, um, you're pretty much, um, yeah, in, back in the sea. Mm. So, mm. so depending how climate change will play out, uh, yeah, we could end there in the next 100, 150 years again. Mm. Yeah, or maybe even sooner. Um, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully you've got your boating skills sorted out. <laughs> yeah, I don't, mm. I don't, I don't think it will approach that quickly. So we probably um, yeah, can move a bit quicker. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, but also, I've I, I have um, a, a, another student, and his wife also visits uh, Glastonbury for mm. um, uh, the meetings or conferences. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's you know, having lived in the UK um, and having grown up completely unaware um, of all of this, uh, was outside of the uh, the sort of historical myths. Connecting, mm -hmm. you know, Merlin and Arthur and uh, you know those kinds of legends, which yeah. which apparently were first noted down by a French author about 500 years after Arthur is supposed to have lived. But anyway, mm. that's a, that's a different uh, that's a different topic. But I mean, the, the historical facts suggest that at a certain point in the eighth or ninth centuries, maybe even earlier, there was a popular um, person called Arthur because lots of young boys were named Arthur. Mm. Um, so there is some character uh, from the past um, who clearly influenced uh, some of the sort of political and social mechanisms uh, within uh, within England. Mm. How, how powerful um, do you think is, is it is it fair to call it Druidism um, or is there a different term which is better for it? Well, if if you're looking at the um, um, if the different people that come uh, to Glastonbury these days, there are there's really a multitude of um, of beliefs and um, approaches to spirituality here. So you have Christians of all sorts, you have Buddhists, you have um, pagans or heathens of all sorts. There are also um, people that call themselves Druids. So Druidism is is quite strong in the UK as well. So if, uh, for example, if you um, have the solstices and the equinoxes, um, they will gather in stone circles, like for example, Stonehenge, and then do the um, ceremony of the, of the Celtic, um, Celtic year. Um, yeah, but um, for example, what my uh, wife is um, is involved in is the goddess community. So there's a, also a strong um, community of um, uh, people that that believe in a um, in a deity that is uh, feminine. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah, again, a very interesting discourse. Um, I, I've, I've followed a number of uh, documentaries um, which talk about, uh, they refer to it as the sacred feminine. I think this is perhaps mm. the, the Christian take, um, but also before uh, the sort of um, monotheism 
yeah. of, of the Christian church, you know, a lot of other beliefs uh, included um, female deities. I mean, Sophia, I think, Sophism um, mm. yeah, is one such. So, I mean, there are many different uh, cultures which do have a divine feminine, if not yeah. more than a divine yeah. feminine. So it, it does make sense. Yeah. I've, um, I've um, seen a documentary the other day about um, the Christian God and uh, his evolution, so to say, and what his origins are. And apparently he had a partner as well. So he, he had a wife or female partner. Um, but... Um, yeah, by by time, um, kind of the monotheism uh, in Christianity uh, gained the upper hand, and mm. yeah. So yeah. Um, I mean, there are, there are a couple of approaches uh, when it comes to um, integrating um, the feminine uh, into uh, spirit spirituality and belief. So there are those who are saying it's. Um, uh, the feminine and the masculine have um, their parts to play in spirituality, whereas others more um, do the um, monotheistic approach, but with uh, a female deity in its center. Mm. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a learning process with me as well. I, I tend to approach things in a more inclusive fashion. Um, mm. And uh, I kind of steer away from absolutism because I feel that in the past when I have been so certain about something, dealing with the realization that that certainty was misplaced um, was more of a challenge to me uh, than the process of learning. So mm -hmm. uh, it's much easier, I think, to accept new information and mm -hmm. to consider new perspectives when you are or i am at least not so fixated on a yeah. specific policy yeah i, I mean sense. yeah i mean in the in the strictest sense when you when you have the uh, scientific approach basically what we um see as facts is just um the current hypothesis that hasn't been proven wrong yet yeah that makes sense no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As in the scientific approach, as you say, it is um, the best argument which covers most of the facts um, that, that are represented by the situation. And then when more information comes in, then you can revisit it. But yeah, um, yeah not everybody's in a position to revisit. And obviously, scientific uh, progress sometimes takes time as well. Um, yes, definitely. That is something I, I learned during my student. Uh, uh, studies at, at university that that even in a uh, uh, field of science like physics there are um, um, professors that have a certain uh, approach and they have their kind of belief system into how to interpret certain um, finds and even even if the um, um, basis um, of uh, experiments and results uh, has changed in a way that that hypothesis that that professor is uh, still clinging on to has been proven wrong. Um, it will take probably one generation of uh, researchers um, to uh, 
kind of embrace that new approach just um, out of respect for that professor who um, uh, was their mentor at that mm. time. Yeah, uh, as you say, even in learned circles, uh, change comes slowly. Um, it, it's sometimes very difficult to to accept and embrace change. Um, but it's also interesting. For, I'm sure for you, you you identify differences in in approaches, uh, and again, sort of bringing in the sort of social and cultural differences. So, I mean, if, for example, just the differences between the English uh, and German languages. German seems far more fact based. It seems like a more mathematical, more scientific language. Um, whereas English is a bit more descriptive. Uh, it seeks to explain rather than identify and observe. Would mm. you, is this something that you perhaps would also have noticed or, or am I just chatting crap here? Um, I'm not sure whether it's inherent to the language, but um, it's most certainly um, inherent to the um, approaches in science. So um, I have a master's degree in archaeology and I've um, um, had the majority of my studies were were in Germany, but I've also uh, kind of um, peeked into the uh, the English approach to archaeology. And um, uh, it's quite funny because in 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 German archaeology, it's all it's very much fact driven. So um, if if you have a um, archaeology archaeological um, talk by a by a German archaeologist, he would he would say um, that is um, our site, uh, or this is our find, and we have parallels here. And we have that and that hypothesis, and then we um, raise statistics and do spatial analysis, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very much fact driven, whereas um, a lot of talks um, by archaeologists in in England start by "Let me tell you a story." Hmm. So it's so it's much more um, descriptive then in that case. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sort of mm. t telling a tale, as it were, as as opposed to the this is more social, cultural than factual and scientific. Yeah, um, yeah, I would say it's that. Um, um, I mean, at at the end of the day, of course, um, also the the British archaeology uh, is is using statistics and spatial analysis and. Um, yeah, but but I mean, for, just to give a, a very simple example, it's one that I tend to go to because everybody can sort of appreciate it. If if a if a, if a native English speaker sees somebody walking down the street, then they will use the the progressive form and say she is walking, whereas the German is sie uh, läuft, as in that is the the simple form. There is no progressive form. Um, in in German, mm. stri strictly speaking, grammatically, from from my understanding. So, mm. uh, I mean, again, it's it's very much geared towards stating a fact. So the the, the English is uh, to to make an observation and to talk about what is developing, mm. describing the situation, and the German is explaining that is it. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, and I do find these two approaches to be you know, very interesting because you it's very possible that you could have two scientists with completely different approaches. They would in some cases, they may come to the same conclusion. Mm. Um, but uh, obviously, the presentations would be markedly different. But in other situations, you're going to have a different result. Um, mm. And it's just fascinating the way that this can happen. Your one of your specialist points of interest is uh, castles, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, so my master's thesis was um, about um, uh, mod uh, type castle in in the Rhine Valley. So it was um, first construction was um, at the beginning of the 10th century, and there then there were three phases. Um, of that castle being um, reconstructed over the course of time, and um, um, what I what I did was, or what or what I was able to do was um, to to analyze the uh, the wooden structures in that castle or build, forming that castle, because uh, there were at least two incidents where the uh, where the castle was destroyed, and then they. Uh, would use um, the de debris to uh, kind of heighten the uh, the mount of that mod. And since it was in a in a waterlogged condition, um, all of the uh, woods were preserved over the course of time. And then um, to kind of uh, get some fixed dates for uh, the different um, stages of construction, uh, we could use dendrochronology, which um, yeah, it's quite helpful to get um, actual fixed dates for when the uh, when the trees were cut down to to build the structures. Mm. And, and despite the fact that um, you know in those times, I, I guess they they didn't really have to, the flow of information was markedly different to what it is today. Um, I mean, could you can you observe similarities between the construction of castles from different uh, areas? So like a, your typical sort of German 10th century castle and your typical um, English uh, 10th century castle. I mean, were there similarities or uh, were they largely different constructions? Um, well, there are certainly similarities and differences, but they are springing from um, uh, from from different sources. So uh, within um, the the different regions, you have uh, different approaches um, simply to uh, based on what kind of uh, source material you have to construct the the castle, and also what the uh, topography is that you're located in. So um, whether you're down in the uh, in the valley where you um, Kind of can use the the water to your advantage, where whereas if you're up on a on a, a hilltop, you um, then use the um, kind of the the height difference uh, to your advantage, and then also what kind of materials are are available. If you have stone available, or if you're using um, uh, um, wood to to construct uh, the fortifications. Um, so there are um, kind of dif differences in castle constructions in um, in the region itself, but when it comes to um, um, the 
more wider focus when you're comparing uh, different regions to each other. I don't really um, really think that um, they the flow of information was more inhibited than it than it is today, because um, yeah, people were highly mobile and they were pretty much aware of their surroundings. And uh, especially when it comes to uh, castle construction or construction in general, when you have the stonemasons, there was um, quite a high mobility moving around Europe. But of course, there are uh, certain um, differences in, in style, um, which is, um, I, yeah, go on. Yeah, just uh, just a couple of questions. So, I mean, mm -hmm. with the the choice of wood or stone, I guess this is a financial decision. So, if somebody has more money, then they would go for stone, or was it simply a question of development um, initially? Um, <laughs> bit bit of both. So, um, after the decline the the decline of the the Roman Empire, we also have a yeah, kind of decline in in technology. Um, although you could also state that's also um, uh, based on on if there's demand for certain fortification structures, because after the uh, fall of the Roman Empire, um, um, you have smaller entities of um, of power, so you have a small a local um warlords you could you could say um, um having uh, governance over a smaller territory so there's really no no need for massive fortifications um to control a larger area so um, that's why you probably don't have huge stone fortifications in that time and that will um that, yeah that will kind of continue through through the middle ages that approach for example the um, um the castle i was working on in my master's thesis was of uh, of a um, ministerialen as you as you say in uh, in german or i don't know what the latin term is but uh, basically it's um it's a knight serving um, um a larger lord Mm -hmm. And um, depending on um, how successful they were in their service, those knights, they would acquire quite substantial wealth. And so they were able to develop their their home into a into a castle. And, um, and yeah, it's pretty much depending on um, what financial resources you have. And also, um, there are um, legal implications. So not everybody is allowed to uh, to build a stone fortification. And um, there are yeah. If if you if you're like my lord, uh, yeah. and I'm I'm your knight, and I'm there sort of collecting taxes from from in a specific region, and then all of yeah. a sudden you come to visit me, and I and I've I've built a stone castle, and you've got a wooden one. Yeah. Um, I guess you're going to consider me a a thief because uh, there's no way I should have had that much money that I can build a stone castle yeah. but also a bit of a threat because I'm a formidable knight now with uh, a very defensible position 
Yeah, that's right. And there are, um, uh, especially in the in the 11th to 12th century, when we have the uh, the rise of that um, kind of middle class of knights when they come into into wealth and trying to um, um, find their um, increased status in society. There's there's quite a lot of um, conflict between those those knights rising rising through the ranks and uh, the the settled in nobility because of course that's a that's a problem when when you have somebody who has inherited a certain status in society but yeah, due to bad planning or luck or whatever he has lost the um or or warfare has lost the um the financial ability to uh, kind of um, display that status whereas if you have somebody who doesn't have the um, the heritage background but uh, simply has the uh, economic capacity to uh, to build such a massive fortification then um, yeah then that's there's conflict in the air so to say mm. yeah, there there were a, a lot of kind of military conflicts but also legal conflicts between those opposing parties trying to to settle those disputes so there are a lot of uh, sources where um where knights were ordered to pull down their fortifications because they kind of over, overstepped <laughs> as to mm. how how big and how um massive they were building mm. okay and uh, were some of these knights templars uh, because the, the the templars kind of did grow in power didn't they between the the, the time frames that we're talking about yeah, well, n not really, because the Templars themselves were um, monks, you could say. So they were, they didn't didn't possess possess any any goods themselves. So that was all 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 castles and all um, uh, lands were possessed by the order themselves. So mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, yeah. not as individuals, but as as the group of Templars that they yes. were. Yes. So, okay. Yeah. All right. That's right. So, all right. So it's slightly different. Okay. Um, and then the the other question I was going to ask was about mm -hmm. the the general the sort of technological development and the distribution of knowledge, as it were, or information. Was this largely also uh, contributed to by the um, the Masonic orders? So the the ability to build. Um, it was a kind of skill that was protected, wasn't it? So that they could in some way control the quality or the, the, the influence of their own membership? I have never really looked into the Masonic Order, so I don't okay. know if that's the fact or not. I mean, um, what's um, strongly interwoven uh, in in uh, medieval architecture is um, churches or cathedrals and castles so because you basically you have the same the same workers working on those projects all right i mean there are in, in quite a few churches as well um evidence uh, of um you know, masonic you know art uh, masonic figurines mm. and so on um and, and these are simply I guess nowadays you'd consider that it, it like an Easter egg um, if we're talking about software, um, mm -hmm. but it's just something left behind um, as a kind of a significant message, maybe. Yeah, I mean, um, if 
if you have um, big building projects like a cathedral or or a castle um the the stonemasons um would basically spend spend their whole career working on that one project and um, i think there's just a i don't know if there's there's a more spiritual meaning behind that uh, probably is uh, in in terms of uh, working uh, traditions etc but my, maybe it's just uh, the um, the longing to uh, kind of um yeah leave leave something behind that is um something in, individual to yourself rather than just um yeah kind of fulfilling the um the request of the, the the person that provided the finance to to build that mm. uh, that castle or that cathedral. Yeah, and it's also interesting because you you make reference to the the, the affluence, um, I suppose, successful merchants as opposed to landed gentry and the aristocracy and so mm. on. Um, essentially, what you're describing is a class conflict, um, yes. and, and this is something which you know we're familiar with today. Uh, it has yes. not been eradicated. It's perhaps been expanded today. Um, we don't fight battles, as it were, but there, there is the, the conflict is still there. Mm. Um, how prevalent um, was it then in, in those times? As in, do you think that because people simply accepted the fact that they were born peasants and they will die peasants, there was no point getting involved? Uh, do, do you think now because um, education has been extended to so many people that um, um, we know we can do better? I mean, do, is, it, is that a fair observation to make? Mm, I'm... I mean, especially in the in the Middle Ages, um, basically ev everybody was a uh, was a Christian and was was a believer and went to church. And what the um, what the church mainly preached was that the um, the situation or the um, hierarchy in um, in the social classes is something that's given by God. And therefore, only a few people would would challenge that order because you didn't want to defy God. Okay, all right. So essentially, control exercised through religious dogma. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And the influence of the church, clearly. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I also remember listening to um podcasts which uh, talked about the the development of the church in certain areas and apparently one of the reasons why the church was able to establish a foothold in uh, scandinavian countries was because it was actually um the irish church which moved there and from what i was told that there was a, there was a huge it was a fusion of um paganism and the church in ireland and so therefore the irish church still maintained a lot of the older traditions of the celtic order um, and, the, and the, the celtic culture and yeah. as a result of that these things were also recognizable in scandinavian cultures and so therefore um they were actually Christianized through the Irish church as opposed to through uh, other churches. Yeah, although I'm I'm not 100% familiar with uh, how 
Christianity um, was brought to Scandinavia. But what I know is that especially in the for 5th to um, 8th century, the the Irish church was very productive in uh, in going into non-Christian lands and um, bringing Christianity there. So that wasn't only um, uh, something that's true for Scandinavia, but also for um, uh, for Germany and um, um, and even more eastern parts of Europe. Mm-hmm. So especially in uh, in Germany, I think uh, one of the uh, advisors of Charlemagne was also an Irish monk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Need to need to look look up who who it was exactly. But um, yeah, when when it came to when it came to the expansion of the kingdom of Charlemagne, um, the the Irish monks played a huge part in um, bringing Christianity to to Saxony mm-hmm. and Frisia, etc. Okay. Um, I, I mean, you mentioned France. Um, okay, it wasn't called France in those days, perhaps. But um, well, what I also f- have I've always found it interesting. There is a there is a part of Bavaria, the northern part of Bavaria. It's called Franken, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously, France is called France. Um, um, and there's a similar there's a similarity in the name. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered how that was possible. But then I, I, I listened to a history uh, professor say that essentially there was a move from uh, Francia uh, mm-hmm. to modern day France. Um, and that is exactly where they got the name. So essentially today's France uh, is based on uh, people from originally that German area. Yeah, I always find that fascinating how um, long uh, those those naming conventions or n- names um, find their way through history. So mm. sometimes it's two thousand years, four thousand years, or even more that those names kind of prevail. And yeah, if you if you don't actually find it, find an interest in that and start looking for for the causes, you're just taking that for granted, and you never yeah you never wonder about that till at some point you um yeah do your research mm. yeah i mean i i can't claim to have been uh particularly educated along certain lines i i i won't say that i've researched uh you know all of these different um sort of cultures and periods in history but what i have done is I've got a half decent memory, so I tend to be able to <laughs> recollect certain things. And I, I also try to um, make combinations and, and, and I find that I, I make sense by um, identifying similar terms, similar terminologies, because there's no way in my mind that two completely different languages, for example, would use the same word without there being some form of a relationship between them. And, th- and then I sort of go into it and I mm. do a bit of research and I find it out. And so. For mm-hmm. me, I, I think I'm quite lucky because I've I've learned Italian and I'm learning German, mm-hmm. um, and obviously I speak English, and so therefore that that's quite a a wealth of um, uh, sort of linguistic development there mm-hmm. for for me to draw yeah. connections between, mm-hmm. and and it's fascinating to be able to do that sometimes. Yeah, 
and as, especially when you come come to Italy, um, there's also um, of course you have the um, the um, the Etruscan heritage. So mm. that's kind of what the what the Italian part of um, the language is based on. But then in in northern Italy, you have the Lombards who moved into that region as a uh, so the Lombards being a Germanic tribe who moved there in the um, during the migration period. And so mm. there's when you come to to northern Italy, there's also strong strong Germanic influence there. Well, yeah, I mean, literally, but also by name. So I think Milan or Milano is in Lombardia. So therefore, obviously, the name has remained um, you know, connected and true to its history. Yeah. Um, but also, as you say, to the to the north. Um, so in Italy, I think they call it Alto Adige, but um, Zutirol, I think, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Yeah, I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of parts of those areas and also towards sort of Friuli, there is quite a, a Germanic influence um, mm-hmm. in the way things are done. So, yeah. I, I mean, the study of Europe in itself, it, it's so fascinating. And, and I think we forget it to our peril, the, um, the, the sheer level of um, interconnectedness that all of yes. these cultures have. It's it's unbelievable. And and when you go even further east, and I'm I'm terribly ignorant, so I'm not going to ask too many questions about it, but as in when mm. you go further east, you know, the, those connections become more complex, but at the same yeah. time uh, also extremely rich in, yeah. in in historical value. Yeah. Um I'd um seen a um exhibition about the uh, wreckage of Uluburun. Um must have been twenty five years ago now. Um I don't know if you're aware of that. If you're not, you definitely should look it up. So the the Uluburun was a merchant vessel that uh, sank uh, at the on the south coast of um, modern day Turkey, and I think it went down at let be 2,300 BC, or somewhere between 2,300 and 1,800 BC, and they had um, quite um, a lot of um, goods on the on the vessel when when it um, when it sank, and then what really blew my mind was they had a map there, and they um, had the center point was the 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 wreck, and then they had um, kind of a line drawn uh, to each part from where the uh, the goods that were on that wreck came from in Europe. And was just a ginormous web spanning from um, uh, from Wales, where the tin came from, um, that was on that wreck, down to Egypt, because there were some uh, golden scarabs from mm. from Egypt that I think had the seal of uh, Nofretete, Nefertiti. Uh, Nefertiti, yeah. Yeah, and then they had. Um, What's uh, embers from from the um, eastern eastern sea? Okay. What's the, the Baltic? The Baltic. The Baltic, the Baltic sea. sea, exactly. Yeah. So well. it was a was a huge network of of trade or already going on in the Bronze Age, and um, yeah, so there was was a lot of um, exchange of goods and of course also exchange of ideas. In um, even that four or five thousand years ago, 
And um, if you go further back, apparently there was trade with um, certain kind of stone even during the Stone Ages, because there were some some deposits of um, uh, of stone that were quite uh, valued because of their of, um, they were quite good to make tools from in certain regions. So they they would trade not only the um, the finished blades. Um, but uh, also half um, half products. So then, um, in in some other regions regions of Europe, they could um, yeah kind of build the blades from from the from the flint mm-hmm. that were uh, were part of their culture or their way of living, so to say. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, simply adding lots of uh, fuel um, to to the fire in my belly with with regards to the the theory of uh, interconnectedness, and um, in, in fact, the 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 further back we look, uh, the closer we see um, our, our sort of uh, collective cultures become. Mm. Yeah, um, it's 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 brilliant. And so I mean, you know, I, I love the fact that you you know you did so much uh, by way of studies in, into history. Um, and I'm, there are many topics that we kind of wanted to talk about, but we're not going to get to be able to do so because um, we've already pushed towards an hour. But I also want to um, flip back a little bit mm-hmm. because, you, I mean, you've got a master's in, in archaeology. You clearly love archaeology. And you know, we, we will talk in more detail, I hope, uh, in another few podcasts about the fact that you also build shields and you make your own bows and arrows so you you are completely fascinated in the way of life of of a medieval period Mm. um but you're actually a techie um you're you're very you're a very technical person um and so and obviously your knowledge of technology is is way above my head but can you just just for the purposes of my understanding, mm. there's quite a close relationship, isn't there, between your studies in archaeology and the work that you have to do in a technical capacity on a daily basis? Well, to be fair, um, yeah, you could say I'm interested in technology. <laughs> yeah. So, so, being it medieval technology or even prehistoric technology or being it um, yeah, the technology we are using on a day-to-day basis, um, but if you're studying archaeology in these days, it's a highly technical science because we're using a lot of computers and spatial analysis and um, airborne laser scanning and all kinds of um, scientific approaches to history. So it's not not all <laughs> shirts and uh, digging in the ground with spades. That's part of it as well. But um, yeah, a lot, lot of um, research happens actually on the computer, and therefore you need at some, at least some degree of affinity to technology to be able to work in that field. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. Um, I still find it fascinating, and it's also great that you can combine disciplines um, trained in completely different subjects, and yet still make them work for you. Uh, in a professional capacity and um yeah and, and as as we kind of alluded to at the beginning the you know the transition from germany to the uk at a time of such social and political change um and then 
in the same process, I mean, you've always, as you said, um, had a passion for technology um, mm. uh, to then also pursue this completely different line. Um, you know, it just shows in many ways the the power of positive thinking, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, um, what also plays a huge part in it is if you're in a uh, in a strong relationship with a partner, which I am in my marriage, because um, what we always say is um, whatever life, life throws at us, we are going to make it work and we'll figure something out. And that has worked so far. Wonderful. Long, long may it continue. Yes. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, what, what, what can I say? It's been it's, it's been a tough road uh, being, you know, getting to find an opportunity for us to talk. I hope the next one will be easier to organize yeah. now, now that we've opened the door uh, to to dialogue. Um, but yeah, from me, thank you very much. Um, my compliments to to the family as well um, around this festive period. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wish you guys a wonderful, you say in German as a guten Rutsch, a wonderful slide into 2022. Um, yeah, enjoy. And the same to you. Two and a mic. Two.